Uh, I myself was uh, not here last weekend. One of the awesome things that uh, the leadership uh, does for the ministry staff is if we choose to take it, um, once a year we can take like a week-long sabbatical, which is uh, different from a vacation, just like it's time to like spiritually reflect and rest and kind of get away and uh, maybe just you know address or work on or develop whatever you'd like to just in your own spiritual life. So uh, I took mine, let's see, like Friday the 29th, just through this past Thursday. You may or may not be familiar, there's a church... Uh, down in Cincinnati called Crossroads Church. It's one of the, if not the fastest growing church in the entire country. And uh, twice a year, they do this thing called man camp. And uh, whatever came to your mind when I said man camp, that's, that's exactly what we did. Um, it was uh, it just you know, probably 40, 45 minutes to the southeast of Cincinnati, uh, just out in the country, right, kind of right on the river. Uh, 1,300 men on about 400, 450 acres camping and doing you know, just good old man stuff. And uh, it was just good. A, a, a former student of mine, he attends one of their campuses, so he invited me to be part of the unit because we can't call it a small group because we're men and it's a unit. There were seven of us <laughs> in this thing. And uh, uh, I could you know, tell many, many stories. Anyway, it was a great time. We even got to enjoy that monsoon that came through last Saturday. Just imagine that in a tent and then getting cold. Again, we were men, so we were just loving it, I assure you. Anyway, so uh, it was my first time at this thing. I'd probably go again. Um, But from the stage, they said, hey, there's this thing called the MASH tent, M-A-S-H. And I don't know if it had, it stood for anything. If it did, they didn't say so. But it was kind of written just like that old TV show, uh, you know, just the MASH tent. And I didn't know anything about it. It was just one of those, like, hey, there are people in there. They're there to pray for you. And um, if you go the entire man camp without going to the MASH tent, you've all but wasted your man camp experience. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll certainly go in. Uh, so I go in and I'm immediately paired with uh, a guy named Dale and a guy named David. And again, not know, I just know that they're either really, really have that, that good spiritual gift of like counseling and support. Uh, they might be professional counselors. Again, just really qualified guys. They have volunteer for this thing the entire weekend. And so we go in under this tent and we sit on hay bales because again, men. And uh, they start asking me questions, getting to know me. And uh, it's, it's not long before I realize or I think to myself, I think their goal is to get me to cry. And then I privately think they don't know who they're dealing with if that's their goal. Uh, but they're like, hey, you know, tell me about, tell me about you. You know, why are you here? And I was like, well, I, you know, I'm pastor up in, you know, Dayton area. I get to, you know, do this thing every now and again. So I just came just to like consume, be like I didn't want to lead or be in charge of anything. Like that is fantastic. And uh, they asked me just a little bit like, hey, how are you in Jesus? Like, you know, that sort of thing. So we had a good conversation there. And they're like, is there anything that, like, uh, you'd like to explore? Like, you know, you're here, we can pray for you, anything you want to talk through? And I was like, you know what, you know, there's been a pretty constant theme through most of my, at least, adult Christian life uh, that I've always, um, that I've always been bothered by. And I told them, it's my understanding that there are two ways that we can view God. We can view uh, God as king, and we can view God as father. And I said uh, to Dale and David, uh, I have almost exclusively in my spiritual life viewed God as king. Like, I understand authority, I understand obedience, I understand responsibility and duty and things like that. that and, like, I know how to be a good soldier. That, that makes sense to me. And I said, <clears throat> like, but I have rarely, certainly not with any um, regularity, I've never really known or experienced God as father. Uh, intellectually, I know that's the reality, but you know, there's always that disconnect between at least my head and my heart. And uh, 
that gave him something to kind of grab onto. And Dale, you know, he just makes that intense eye contact with me that counselors and pastors are want to do sometimes. And uh, like tears start to form. And he just kind of starts in just very carefully worded. He just wanted to convey the weight of his words and the truth of these words. Just kind of going into, you know, Andrew, if you only knew how much he loved you. Again, this man doesn't know me, but tears rolling down his face, trying to convey how, God, how much God the Father loves me, Andrew. And it bothered me because, like, I, I would have given anything to be, have been able to, like, cry with him in that moment. But it just was not happening. And I felt bad about that. I was like, that might be a symptom of something that I need to realize more, work on, explore. I'm not sure. But I tell that story to say this. If each of us would be able to cry when we fully understand how much God loves us as our Father, then we would start to understand how Jesus is represented in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, as many of us know, Easter is just two weeks away, and uh, leading up to Easter, the staff like, hey, what if we just focus on Jesus and Jesus alone in the four or five weeks leading up to that day where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So uh, we're like, we'll set up you know, kind of what was going on in the first century that first week, but then just let's kind of plant and set up camp in each of the Gospels leading up to it. And, uh, you know, first week was uh, the Gospel of Matthew, how Jesus is represented there. And then uh, Roger kind of took us through the, uh, Jesus in John's Gospel last weekend. And uh, I get to kind of bring, it, uh, bring uh, the representation of Jesus to us from the Gospel of Luke, which happens to be my uh, favorite of the Gospels. And there are so, so, so many uh, themes we can get into uh, in the 24 chapters of Luke. You know, there's things like uh, Jesus' salvation to outsiders more than insiders, uh, how Jesus treated those that we would consider down and out or the marginalized. Uh, Jesus was about empowering women, and you really don't get that so much in the other Gospels, but Luke really highlights that. Uh, we get a lot about grace, which we'll talk about toward the end of, of my message, uh, and then Really, if we're like kind of assigning a role to Jesus, Luke really highlights Jesus as Savior or kind of updates him with non-churching language. Uh, Luke really presents Jesus well as Jesus the Rescuer. So what we're going to do, we're pretty much just going to be in one chapter of Luke. It's arguably Luke's most famous chapter and just three of his parables, certainly his most famous parable, the three lost parables, lost sheep, lost coin, and then the prodigal son as we know it. And we're going to read each of these, and we're going to try and find uh, the heart of Jesus in each of them. Uh, but first, I wanted to kind of tell a story getting into uh, this uh, theme of lostness and foundness. Uh, perhaps a, a couple months ago, you caught the national story of three-year-old Casey Hathaway in North Carolina back in January. Uh, the three-year-old boy, he was out in the backyard of his great-grandmother's property playing with a couple of other relatives. And then when great-grandma calls them all inside for you know, dinner or just it's getting dark, two of the three come in and Casey does not. So Casey is lost. And the family, they spend about 45 minutes uh, searching for Casey, just you know, kind of around there before they decide, we need to call, we need to call 911. We need to call uh, people who know what they're doing. And it kind of grew, you know, search and rescue teams from all over the state. They immediately came together, uh, braving the treacherous terrain of this part of the country, along with some low temperatures, hoping to find Casey. 
Uh, just to kind of give an example or just the, uh, how wide the search was, uh, they brought in FBI, NCIS, dozens of volunteers, scores even. Uh, the U.S. Marine Corps also joined the effort to find this boy. They brought in helicopters and drones and dogs, you know, those canine units. They even had uh, divers checking out uh, nearby water sources, some ponds. And, you know, it's certainly just a, a three-year-old being lost uh, out in nature is uh, frightening and scary and dreadful enough, but uh, they were just really, really concerned about the extreme cold as these temperatures, they were dipping near freezing, you know, each night. And uh, just to kind of talk about how bad the conditions were, uh, the authorities were even turning uh, willing volunteers away saying, no, it's just kind of too dangerous for you. And it took three harrowing days for a search team to find Casey Hathaway, and they found him alive, which these stories don't always end that way. You know, facing, it was heavy rain, gusty winds, low visibility. Uh, they focused on about 1,000 acres of heavily wooded area there in Craven County, North Carolina. Anyway, so on the third day, they get a tip that led to them finding, being able to hear three-year-old Casey. He was calling out for his mother. And then through 40 to 50 yards of intense, really thick brush, uh, they find him. He was cold, but he was alive, and he was very responsive. And they get to the hospital, and just, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable calling this a miraculous situation. Uh, they, you know, take him to the hospital, and all he was treated for were some cuts and scrapes. And he was reunited with his family there. And you can just imagine the celebration when this family just shows up at the hospital. And I love this quote from Casey's mother. Casey's mother told reporters, he's good, he's up and talking, he's already asked to watch Netflix, so he's good. <laughs> I don't, I don't know this family. Um, I'm not a parent, so there's only so much I can connect with this. But like when I was, you know, when this was a national story, like no, no, not knowing how it was going to end, if you're following this at all, just like any time this sort of thing happens, there's just that pit in your stomach. It's always uh, painful, and there's that sadness or grief when something is lost, but especially when something is so valuable, <clears throat> not only lost, but then just the celebration and joy that comes with it when it's actually found. Jesus tells three stories right in a row about things lost and things found. Here's the first one. He's talking to a a group of people. Jesus says this. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? And when found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders rejoicing. And when you got home, call in your friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me. I found my lost sheep. And Jesus says, count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. Again, this is kind of like a microcosm of how Jesus is represented in Luke's gospel. And if we want to kind of get a good window, a good step into the heart of Christ himself, I like that line, count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people who don't need rescue at all. Now, if you're a devoted follower of Jesus, you know what it's like, hopefully intellectually, what it's like to be part of this family, be part of this fold. Maybe you have a good handle on that uh, father piece that I can sometimes uh, struggle with. But also, have you ever like, had that family member or close friend like you've been praying for for years and years, maybe even decades, and then finally they get to like, walk into something like this and give their life to Jesus? Have you experienced that joy and celebration yourself? Just a smile so big that you're just like, like only Jesus could have done that. Like that was a miracle, no doubt about it. That's the kind of party and joy that they throw in heaven. He tells two more stories that are very much in line with this. 
Um, the next one's about a lost coin, but I wanted to kind of ask everyone, like, if, if you've ever lost, like, a piece of jewelry, uh, maybe even something as valuable as a wedding ring, uh, I was, again, looking online, and I found this fascinating story about this guy named Eddie. Uh, this is a British guy who lives in Durham, England. And uh, he said that he had a ring disappear when he was playing cricket. Again, the British, they do that sort of thing. Back in 1966. And he thought he would never see it again. <clears throat> Here's how he said it happened. He said, we had to take our jewelry off before going out into the field. And when we finished, I realized that it had completely vanished, his wedding ring, that I think he'd only had for about six months. He was just newly married. He says, I searched everywhere for it, but could not find it, and spent the next few weeks quartering the field like a barn owl, again, must be an English phrase, desperately looking for that ring, but with no luck. And just kind of, I mean, a wedding ring itself is just, you know, sentimental and valuable uh, in and of itself, but uh, both Eddie and his wife, his wife's name is Jean, they had their names engraved on the inside, so just kind of adding to that sentimental value. And over the years, again, his wife, Jean, like, be it an anniversary, uh, some marriage milestones, birthdays here and there, she would often just offer to buy him a replacement ring, and he always adamantly refused because he viewed that initial, that first ring as something that was absolutely irreplaceable. He would never hear of a replacement. You can't replace that first one. And certainly whenever we talk about, like, how it felt to lose that ring, he would just say, just absolutely devastated. And that was the best way he could describe it, just absolutely devastated. So that was 1966. Anyway, fast forward 52 long years. He's 73 years old now. And he's stunned when actually just kind of by chance, his older brother, his name's Billy, he calls him up and saying, hey, uh, someone just found your ring and it's not too far from uh, that cricket field that you're playing on, you know, 50 some years ago. Uh, and it's in near perfect condition. And he says, on the miraculous find, uh, even though like there's that piece that was missing, he was like, you know, after 50 years, you kind of forget that you even had a ring to begin with in some cases, that you just kind of get used to not having that. Uh, and Eddie said, like, I could not believe that it was there after, this in, after all that time, you know, maybe it had been picked up by a magpie, dropped off somewhere, maybe it got caught up in a lawnmower and just kind of flew somewhere. Uh, but you can imagine, it wasn't just Eddie himself who was overjoyed, ecstatic about this find. He said, when we got it back and I showed it to Jean, she broke down in tears of joy. It has been unbelievable. He says, I wish it could talk because having been lying there for 52 years, it must have an awful lot of stories to tell. And the funny part is, uh, just because, you know, he's gotten older, the ring no longer fits Eddie's wedding finger, his wedding, yeah, his wedding finger, but it's been repurposed. It's now a pinky ring, which again, he still gets to wear it. But this is what he says. <clears throat> he says, he's never taking it off and risking losing it again. Here's the parable that Jesus says something like this. Jesus says this to the crowd of people who maybe don't get this whole lostness and foundness and the joy that comes with it. But Jesus says this. He says, or imagine a woman who has ten coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house, looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, if you, you can be sure, she'll call all her friends and neighbors, celebrate with me, I found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. Now, in this case, again, like parables are my absolute favorite of genre just to study, to read about, even preach. And I don't know why, but this, uh, of the three, you know, lost sheep, lost coin, and the prodigal son, uh, I have no idea why, but this one always seems just a little more special to me. 
Um, again, I, I can't put a finger on it, but just the, it's just so vivid in my mind, this uh, woman, she has 10 coins, and just kind of knowing how women were treated and positioned, just their social status back then, uh, you just really, really needs what money she has. And uh, the scholars think that uh, you know, this coin was about a day's wage. So, you know, for our purposes today, you know, depending on what you do for a living, you know, anywhere from 100 to 200 bucks has been lost in the value of this coin. And, uh, you know, their houses are small, not well lit, you know, floorboards, there's dust all over the place so you can crack down. So I just imagine this painfully, um, <clears throat> just this desperate woman who just really, really needs this money is going to do anything to find this. You just see her on her hands and knees worrying. Maybe she's just so upset, so fraught. Maybe she's even crying, desperately trying to find this. And then she finds it. And it's not, so much, it's not enough that she gets to just celebrate in her own self, but she calls on the neighbor saying, hey, I found my lost coin. And honestly, if you're the neighbor, you're probably like, yeah, good for you. What, <laughs> you know, who cares? It wasn't my coin. And honestly, we might feel that way about if a lost person turns to God, like I didn't know them. But that one lost coin, that one lost soul, you see how much it means to God the Father. That anytime one lost soul turns to God, God's angels, they throw a party. You know, reading about Eddie and his wife, Jean, I just love that line. When we got it back and I showed it to Jean, she broke down in tears of joy. Again, finding that wedding ring probably didn't mean a whole lot to anyone besides Eddie and Jean. But my gosh, how much that meant to Eddie and Jean, right? Let me read this last parable for us. It's the longer one. It's the most famous parable, maybe even the most famous short story in all the world, all of history. So you might know it, you might not, but I'm going to read it for us. Then Jesus said this, There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. That's the inheritance. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. And there, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. And after he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. And he was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up and went home to his father. And when he was a long way off, I love that phrase. When he was a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, the older son, his older son, was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in. And as he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on, and he told him, Your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. 
And the older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on horrors shows up and you go all out with a feast. And his father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that's mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time. And we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. Three stories right in a row communicating the same thing. Lost sheep was found, lost coins found, and then this son that comes back. Now if you read at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, the reason that Jesus tells these stories to begin with is he was gathered with a bunch of people who, if we were signing labels, would have fit comfortably under the lost label. They would have been considered lost people. And Jesus tells these stories because the Pharisees were around, the professional, you know, the spiritual professionals. And uh, honestly, just the Pharisees, these religious experts, they honestly just didn't like who Jesus was hanging out with. So Jesus sees this as an opportunity. He's like, you know what? They're just not getting it, and they need to get it. You know, their hearts are hard to people who their hearts need to be softened toward. And I don't know if it's going to do any good, but I'm going to try and tell a story that might soften a heart just a little bit. Now, when it comes to parables, uh, you can always get into some dangerous territory because the temptation is to kind of uh, use symbolism or allegorize a lot of these people. And I try and guard against that, but I think we're on the safe side of uh, symbolism and allegorizing uh, when we kind of Uh, assign some parts here or what these different sons and the father mean. Uh, Typically, if you hear or read a parable and there are different characters involved, you're going to um, relate to one above the other. So each one of us can typically lean toward one of these. Maybe you feel like the father, maybe you feel like the younger son, maybe you feel like the older son. Uh, But if we're kind of reflecting on our own spiritual past, some of us are the son who... You know, they turned their back on the Father, they turned their back on God, lived life how they wanted to, kind of ran into some consequences, maybe hit rock bottom, maybe got a glimpse of rock bottom and it scared you, and uh, you know what it's like not only to come back to God, but for God to receive you with open arms, no, not a trace of judgment. You know the grace, you know the forgiveness, like nobody else. Some of us can relate to that younger son. That's who we are in the story. I don't feel like I've ever been the younger son. But my goodness, I can play the older son very well. I don't even need a script to play that part well. Some of us relate more to that son who stayed. And uh, it was a number of years ago when someone said, you know, this parable shouldn't be called the the parable of the prodigal son. Really, this parable should be called the parable of the two lost sons. It's not just one that was in trouble, but two of them. I'll speak for my own self, and maybe you can relate, but I can certainly relate to this older son. Like, I can easily see the one, uh, like, I I am so good at judging people, and I'll talk about this. Just, I I learned a lot about myself on sabbatical, or maybe I was reminded of things about myself when I was on sabbatical this last week. Um, But I'm really, really good at deciding who gets God's grace and who doesn't. I could be professional at it if I wanted to. Like, I can size somebody up. What are they wearing? How do they present themselves? What words do they use? What did they drive in on? I can say, 
yeah, they don't deserve the grace of God like I do. Poor them. Here's what the older son says. And again, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the real world now. But maybe you know what it's like to be saying, hey, I've done all the right things. I've been following God for my whole life. I've, I've never done anything wrong, never done anything serious to cause God any real grief. Look at how hard I've been working. Don't I deserve fill in the blank? And here comes this person who just met Jesus yesterday and everyone's rolling out the red carpet celebrating, you know, just saying how proud of them they are and just sitting here like, what about me? And that's when God the Father comes in and talks to us and says, I don't think you're getting it. You know, you've been walking with me for a long time and you know what it's like to be my child. You know what it's like to kind of get the blessings of a relationship with me. So you've had it really, really good for all this time. But here's my heart. I love you. I love you so much. But here's my heart. We have your brother who was lost, didn't know which way was up, and he's come home. So yeah, absolutely, we're going to throw a party because there is nothing more we're celebrating than that. Jesus himself says this. There's nothing more worth celebrating than when someone who was far off, didn't know Jesus, turns to Jesus and runs right into the open arms of the Father and says, yes, I'm home. This is where I belong. Uh, for, for a few minutes here, I'm going to talk about a few things. Um, it's going to kind of sound like spaghetti. Um, it's going to be like kind of interwoven and things like that. And um, it's said every now and again in the in preaching circles that we have to preach the sermon to ourselves first before we kind of give it to others. So just know um, I am very much preaching to myself on this. Um, uh, again, it was a good week of sabbatical, and I haven't unpacked all of it. But uh, I'm going to talk about uh, identity a little bit. I'm going to talk about grace a little bit, and hopefully we'll kind of end up um, just why this is important, kind of how this connects to uh, Jesus' heart as a rescuer, and that we're people in need of rescuing. Uh, but uh, I kind of realized, like, until we understand, like, identity and until we understand grace, I don't know if we really understand completely the heart of Jesus when it comes to uh, calling lost people to himself. Um, I'm gonna, here's what, here was something that I wanted to do. After man camp, I did the Airbnb thing. I rented a small apartment in uh, Cincinnati uh, for, like, Monday through Thursday. And one thing I want to do for my sabbatical, and this might be too much information for you, but I'm trying to grow in vulnerability, so here we go. Um, I wanted to, and I'll explain this phrase, but I wanted to deconstruct my theology. And here's what that means, um, at least for my own self. Um, uh, I love what I do. I love what I do so much. And it is a blessing. And, and, and again, I love it. Uh, but also, like, it is, it can, be, it can be difficult not to kind of fall into like a nine to five attitude. And um, even in giving a sermon from the stage, or if I get to lead a small group or a one-on-one conversation, um, if I'm giving guidance or truth or wisdom from, from God or, or scripture, uh, honestly, it can feel uh, canned sometimes. Like it's true, I believe it, but I just kind of noticed that I, I just didn't feel a lot of passion or conviction that I once did. I'm like, this is no good. So um, I was like, you know, I just kind of need to like throw up a, just a bunch of theology pieces on a piece of paper and just kind of go through and write, here's my knee-jerk reaction, here's how I feel about it now, and then we'll kind of see if, how much of a gap there is between how I feel now and how I want to feel or hope to feel about it. And I wrote down this word identity, and identity is a very popular thing to explore, especially over the last five or ten years. And uh, at the end of the day, we're supposed to identify as a son or daughter of God. That's how we're supposed to identify ourselves. We are first a child of God. And I've told a few people this already, and one of them gasped. So if this sounds heretical, I'm sorry. 
Um, but I wrote down when it comes to identity. Again, this is just my heart writing. I, I try to leave my head off to the side. I wrote something like this. I know we're supposed to identify as a child of God first. Mentally, I understand this. And again, this was the honest piece. But I said, honestly, whenever I'm told or assured that I am a child of God, my knee-jerk reaction is, is to say, what is so good about that? I don't know if you can relate or not. Again, intellectually, I know exactly where my identity is, but then there can be a disconnect between uh, what we think and what we actually feel. And there are a few ways that we can you know, land on our identity. Um, some of us were like, hey, I am what I have. Like, be that a family, house, a property. Like, I am what I have. And some of us might be like, I am what others say about me. Your esteem rises and falls on the last rumor or the last good or bad thing uh, someone said to you. And some of us are like, I am what I do. And I am almost exclusively in this thing. It's a problem. Like, I define myself by what I do, what I can accomplish, that sort of thing. Again, it's not healthy, but I trying to work on it. Anyway, kind of going back to uh, that, the, the mash tent with Dale and David, I said, like, I have always experienced and understood God as king, but God as father, like, it's, it's, it's felt out of reach, and, and I don't want that to feel out of reach anymore. Like, I want to experience this, and I want to experience really, really badly, because in just, like, having that relationship of God only as king, it's rewarding, but there are limits to it. And I don't want to be limited in my relationship with God himself. Uh, so maybe this would be helpful. I found a, a source that kind of, uh, that just rang true with me. Just like, here might be some signs that you struggle with uh, knowing God as father. Here's a few of them. Uh, maybe you just uh, find yourself resisting intimacy with God. Or maybe you struggle to just kind of sit down and rest. Or you struggle to uh, abide or rest in him. Uh, maybe you're lacking emotions in your relationship with God. Uh, Maybe you're in the habit of forgetting to run to God as the first source of healing and comfort. Maybe it's just that you just have trouble believing that God loves you like crazy, that he made you on purpose, and he wants to bless your life. Or maybe you have more memories of your parents disciplining you more than them just kind of sitting down with you and getting to know you. Those are maybe some signs that, like me, you kind of struggle with feeling uh, God as Father. Um. That's not entirely like the main point of the morning, but my prayer for my own self and everyone here is just that we can know him as father, maybe even know him more as father than as king. That's some thoughts on identity. Again, hopefully it'll fit somewhere in here. Again, it's, it feels like spaghetti in my mind this morning. But then I want to talk about grace. And again, this person, it was funny, in the mash tent, they kept saying, Andrew, stop talking with your head. Drop the theology. Just talk with your heart. I'm like, I can't. They said, try. Is it Okay. <clears throat> Like, the definition of grace is like unmerited divine favor. Doesn't that sound so wooden and clinical? It's like, well, that's my brain. So, so I'm like, maybe, I, you just let's try and understand grace, maybe in a more poetic way. So I turned to my favorite Christian author. His name is Frederick Buechner. He's, he's in his 90s now. Uh, but he's always spoke my language. And he had this to uh, say about grace, and it's better than I could ever say it. Again, this is, you know, God's grace that we have in mind. He says this. Grace is something you can never get but can only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace and so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving someone else is grace. 
He says, a crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion, the truth, that people are saved by grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. The grace of God means something like this. This is the grace of God. Here is your life. You may never have been, but you are. Because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. But don't be afraid. I'm with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. He says there's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. And he says maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. Here's kind of the more uh, heady side of this, uh, these stories, these three parables. Uh, we know that while the loss of something valuable, whether that be a coin, whether that be a sheep, whether that be a son, while the loss of something that's really valuable, it results in sadness and grief. Finding the lost brings about a whole lot of joy and celebration. And while the religious leaders back then, they turned their backs on sinners, turned their backs on the lost, the father rejoiced when even just one was found. Uh, we're going to do the communion thing here in a bit. So if you're on that team, um, uh, that can be your, your cue for that. But my, my mind was uh, taken to this uh, passage in Ephesians. That's going to be kind of like our guiding prayer into communion. So let me read this from Ephesians 3. These are Paul's words, kind of understanding God as Father and his heart for lostness and kind of really trying to comprehend and feel what this love is. Paul writes this, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. I'll just let scripture speak for itself. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll have communion. Pray with me. Father, in knowing your son Jesus is a rescuer that also comes with it with knowing and feeling in our hearts that if there's a rescuer out there, then some people must be in need of rescue. That just as there are found people, they were lost people first. If we can, help us grasp onto that, that truth that uh, we can know the father side of you that comes along with uh, you being a rescuer. And in this moment, we have a few minutes with, with, uh, with words from the stage, with music that blesses and honors you, but also these components that Jesus himself has said with, hey, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, so help us with this, because sometimes we need help. Um, let us know that Jesus is our rescuer, and Jesus says, hey, this is the moment that you remember um, the means that I took to rescue you. In Jesus' name, amen.